Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast with your host and armed services veteran, Tiffany Martschink. Tiffany is an advocate for military veterans especially women who have served and are currently serving in all branches of the military. She is also passionate about suicide intervention and says, suicide awareness is not enough. 22 push UPS a day for 22 days may have brought about awareness, but it doesn't provide any type of intervention. Instead of doing 22 push UPS, how about contact 22 people in your sphere of influence each month? Do a battle buddy check. To find out more about Tiffany and the Medal of Honor podcast, go to her website at gap-medalofhonor.org. Now, let's listen in on this week's episode. When I think of my service, I, I was honored to do it, but I was often covering the people that were doing the really dangerous stuff. So I may have been there in the dangerous place, but I wasn't doing the dangerous thing. I was videoing. <laughs> Hi, I'm April Sprentz. I was a broadcaster for television and radio in the United States Air Force, and I joined from a tiny little town in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. How long were you in the Air Force? I was in almost seven years. Was it one of those things where you just said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do some time in the military and this chapter is over? Um, no, not at all. It was more, I joined the military because I wanted a college education. I really wanted to do the role that I was able to do in the military. And I was probably the person you would have voted least likely to join. I looked like Private Benjamin, if you've ever seen the movie with Goldie Hawn, where they're like, really, this girl? Transitioning out of the military. Did you have other plans already in place? So for me, the reason I got out at the seven-year point, or nearly seven years, was because I was in an interesting career field where there were limited things that you could do. You could be a, a, a television reporter, a radio DJ, you could be a television news anchor, and then the big job was to be chosen to be the television news anchor for Air Force Television News. And I had gotten that job as an E-5 or staff sergeant, so at about a six-year point. And there were no other jobs for me when I was that young, other than running a station of my own overseas that, again, they thought I was too young for. So there would have been years where I would have been, in my opinion, spinning my wheels. I would have been doing jobs I already knew how to do. And for me, forward momentum and learning more and growing is so important that that seemed like a good point for me to say, okay, well, now I'm going to try something new. When you got out the Air Force, did you jump into doing broadcasting work because of doing it in the military, or did you do a completely different career change? Well, first, let's clarify that I got out of the military in possibly the most short-sighted, asinine way anyone could do it, <laughs> but it seemed like a good idea at the time. We were having what the Air Force called a drawdown at that time period, not in the Air Force overall, but in broadcasting. So I had the ability to literally just name the date I wanted to leave once I realized that I, I did want to get out. And they gave you anywhere from, you know, a day's notice you could give the military all the way up to six months. And six months would have been really bright, right? Plan it out, 
put your resume out, get some broadcasting gigs. Oh, no, I gave the Air Force two weeks notice. <laughs> no real thought awesome. went into that. No real thought. Uh, and then so when I got out, I immediately realized getting a job was a lot more difficult than it had been when I was 17 years old. And you just, you know, went and applied at a couple of restaurants. So I was putting my broadcasting tape out there. I was sending out auditions and getting interviews. And I was temping at the same time, doing temporary like secretarial work, just because I wanted to contribute to my household. And candidly, I spent a lot of money if I stayed home. It was better for me to work. And so during that time, a couple things happened. One, I got some job offers in reporting and quickly found out that even though we think we don't make any money when we're in the service, we made significantly more than someone who's starting off in broadcasting, which was jarring for me. And then I also had a change in my personal life in that the person I was engaged to had two small children and we got custody of those two kids. And because he was still in the service and still traveling internationally, for me, the idea of taking a job where I'd be on second shift and then they'd be with another caregiver and had had, you know, they were not with their dad. They were not with their other person that they're used to. It just felt like the right choice for me would be to go into the corporate world. So that's what I did instead of going into broadcasting. And what is it when you went into the corporate world? Because I know you're doing some pretty awesome stuff now what is it that got you what corporate job did you go into and then how did you move from it to where you are now so initially I got hired by a company that was in the financial industry and they serviced banks and then other companies like Costco Office Depot etc we also worked with them creating financial products like checks and forms and things like that under a private label and I spent about 10 years at that company, and I had such a variety of roles in marketing and operations and sales and client management that it really prepared me without me knowing it for what I do today. And I got to a point where I had hit a cap. I hit a compensation cap where I couldn't earn anymore as the top salesperson, and it felt like I was not being given responsibility that would continue to grow me. So I got recruited to a software company that was very new at the time, has since had a $7 billion IPO. I was very fortunate to get recruited and be a part of that growth and, and that big achievement. And through doing that, again, I had the opportunity to really be stretched and grow and learn a lot of new and different things. And during that time period, I realized that what I really loved was helping people and helping clients. And I wanted to do that in a bigger way. I wanted to do it more than just with the company that happened to be buying whatever it was that the company I was working for was selling. And I also found that I was really more drawn towards mentoring and helping other folks within my company than I even was towards the selling. And, and that was as the top salesperson, but that wasn't where my joy was. So I left to start my own company because and I, I didn't have a great plan, Tiffany. I was like, I want to help people. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to make a company and I'm going to help people. I kind of feel the same way. I love helping people. To me, that's just, that's what's up. Is that what the generosity culture is? Absolutely. So for me, the generosity culture started much younger. I 
had a life-changing experience when I was a young girl around nine years old. There was a female executive who was the head of human resources where my mother worked at her factory who came into our home because my mother had been identified as having an alcohol problem and was given the option of going to rehab or losing her job. And what was so amazing is this woman came into our home because she knew my mom had a little girl and explained this situation to me and really framed it in a way that gave me a lot of hope that life was going to get a lot better. And it was just this incredibly generous gesture for her to, one, come into our home to make this easier because she didn't have to do that. And two, while she was there, she said, you know, April, you're really special and you can do absolutely anything. I really believe in you and I'd like to be your friend. And it was this incredible act of generosity that shaped my life. And then it happened to shape the way I did business. So whether it was in the service or when I was in the corporate world and working with clients or starting my own company, I always led with how can I help? How can I pour into someone the way that I was poured into? So the generosity culture is really those three principles, pouring into your people, your clients, and your community. And as I started my own company, even not knowing what I was going to do, the company really took shape when someone came to me and asked for my help and said, hey, I've got a friend who has a failing company. Can you help him turn it around? And I really had no experience doing anything like that. But my answer was absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, you just shared something about about your past. And that reminded me of hearing you share it when you and I first met. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit, a little bit about that. And here's why. Because when it comes to its people, people enter into the military because it's the only way up. Like, it's the only thing that they have going for them. And then there's another group of people where you know, they, can, they can come from any other kind of background. And, um, the, you know, and not because it's just the only option that they have. But either way, it seems like there are many people who join the military and when they exit the military, they launch and just do amazing things like what you're doing with the generosity culture. But I would love it if you could share that story of, um, or and go into as little or as much detail as you want about growing up in the environment that you grew up in. And then, in turn, joining the Air Force. Yeah, absolutely. So I came from a family of really humble means, single parent. And I didn't know it at the time, but we were poverty level. And as I was made aware of that, I was always trying to think of ways that I could have a different life. And one of those, of course, was college. So it was always in my plan to go to college. And as a, a young, bright child, I think I had a little too much arrogance about how smart I was. I always assumed I was going to get a scholarship. And when it came down to it, the school of choice that I wanted to go to, which was Boston University, I got accepted under early decision, which was a big win. But the amount of scholarship that I qualified for, candidly, because, yeah, it was smart, but I wasn't the smartest kid in the world. It was just a portion of what it would have cost. And because of the background I had, even working full time while I was in high school, I didn't know how I could swing it financially. 
And it was just a great learning point for me because I had turned down full scholarships to local schools because I had this idea of what my life needed to be and where I needed to go to be able to do these big things, which I think when you're young, you can, maybe some people don't do this, but you can just decide what it has to be even when it doesn't. And I was then really humbled by the fact that I didn't get to go away to college. I was still working full time. I paid to go to one of the schools that had offered me a scholarship, which was a great lesson. I'm I'm really glad that happened. And I met someone who had been in the Air Force while I was at school. And I had never considered the military. I was a really girly girl. I thought I was I had this certain path I had to go on and that there was only one path to be successful. But this gentleman opened my eyes about the military and the fact that there were broadcasters in the military, that they would allow you to go to school, that they would even give you financial help to go to school. And all of a sudden I was like, well, this is what I'll do. And it was really interesting because there were all boys except for me and my sister and our family. And I was the only one who went into the service at that point. No, no one else in our generation had decided to go. And it was just this amazing experience. And I don't know if you want me to go into it or not, but even going through the audition process to become a broadcaster was a real defining and teaching moment for me because I failed initially. I didn't get in on the first try. Yeah, that's so like how many times did it take you? It would have taken me like 500 or something. (laughs) Not at all. So it took two. And it was a another big learning. That was a big learning year for me because I failed. And that failure, I thought, okay, well, my life is over. So I'm 18 years old and I'm like, there's nothing for me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I had been such a persevere kind of person. And this just punched me right in the gut. And so for a couple of months, I literally had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, I was still working. I was still going to college, but I felt very adrift. And then what was really such a huge blessing, and some folks wouldn't have seen it that way. They would have probably thought it felt like salt in the wound. But my recruiter called and said, hey, I know you were the first person to ever do a broadcasting audition and you failed and all, but there's this other kid who wants to do it. He was a broadcaster in high school and he needs help with his audition. Would you help him? And it's funny because this is where I think about the generosity culture and how it was a part of me for all of my life, even before it was such an integral part of my business, because I didn't even hesitate. I was like, absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to help him. And so I helped this young man do his broadcasting audition. And I got out of the way right in the beginning. Yeah, I failed, but it's no big deal. It was a big deal, but I was trying to look cooler than I was. And we helped him and he did a great job on his. He did end up getting accepted. And he gave me the greatest gift at the end of our time working on it, which was saying, because I'd shared with him exactly what they shared was wrong with my voice. And he said, April, I've been a broadcaster for a while and I've done training at my school. I don't think those things are true about your voice. I think you should try again. And literally, Tiffany, up until that point, I had not even thought of trying again because it hit me so hard that I failed. I always thought if I worked really hard, I could have whatever I wanted. And that first failure just, it knocked me for such a loop. And it wasn't my first failure in life, but it was my first failure with something that I considered my dream and my purpose. So that rolled around in my head for a little while. And I'll always be grateful to him because I ultimately ended up asking a local 
news reporter that I knew if she would help me and help me get my tape evaluated. It was a tape back then and see if we could, you know, get me vocal lessons or what we could do. And when she evaluated the tape with someone, they immediately said, where did she do this? And we found out that what was causing the issues, quote unquote, with my voice was the acoustics in the room, the equipment we did it on. It was making things seem different than they were. So I was so excited. I did another audition and I got in. But what I take away from that is, had I not put aside my own bruised ego of not making it and being a big fat failure, I wouldn't have helped that young man. And that young man would not have been able to change the trajectory of what I did with the Air Force. Because if I wasn't a broadcaster, I wasn't sure I was going to go in at all. Dang. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Because this, you know, turning turning failure into something good. I think that's awesome. Um it, you, and you, you know you mentioned you gave your 2 weeks notice to the Air Force. I mean, <laughs> like we so, so we do that, we do that in the civilian side of hey, I need to give you at least a 2 week notice. I hadn't heard of anybody doing that with the military, so you're the first with that one. And, and, and I think that's awesome. But, I, you know, so I was going to ask you, so many times, I think without fail, transitioning from the military life into whatever is next for them on the civilian world is a difficult transition. And I, I just wonder um, what that was like for you and part of what made me think about that is I saw um, a blog post that you wrote in April of last year about losing your job doesn't mean losing yourself. And even mm -hmm. though that was, you know, uh, as it was related to COVID, I think that's a, a big, a big change when you, when you take off your uniform for the last time. When you take your uniform off for the last time in the military, you've taken off an identity. And a lot of times we have an identity crisis. Was that something that you felt like you went through as well? I absolutely did to an extent. So it's interesting. I think that the military is absolutely an identity. I mean, as a veteran, I identify with folks just because they served, whether I know them or not. And I've never experienced a camaraderie or a family like that, if you will, anywhere else, even in my own actual biological family. I don't feel like we're as connected as military members are, which is a super strong statement. But that just lets you know how strong I feel like our connection is. And when I got out, it was both a blessing and a curse that the person I was in a relationship with was still in. And he happened to be in my same career field. So I still saw a little bit of the people that I had been in day-to-day -day life with. But it was very obvious to me that I wasn't a part of it anymore. It was almost like now there are inside jokes that you don't know. And there's just this level of you are adrift and on your own that I cannot even begin to explain. And I know that the service really tries to prepare people with transition assistance to get out into the civilian world and get a new role. But I'll tell you, we don't do a good job of it. There is not a great translation of 
what that service and what that leadership training, regardless of their skill set, really means as a candidate in the civilian world. And I'll tell you that I used to think that civilian business was superior to what we were doing in the military, but surely from a leadership perspective and a management perspective, there is nothing like the training that you get in the Air Force. But you as a military member who's transitioning, whether you're retiring or you're separating, you can't articulate that value in a way that a civilian company can really understand. So a lot of folks get hired and then those companies are like, oh man, we won the lottery. This person's amazing because maybe they hired them, but they didn't understand what a gem they were getting. Folks may not understand what a gem they're getting. And I think the biggest challenge, at least that I faced, and I think that a lot of other folks face, is convincing whoever it is that they're looking to work with that they are a great bet. And it's interesting, the first company that hired me in the corporate world, I stayed there for a decade, but I fought like hell to get hired. I've never fought harder than I fought to get a job I was overqualified for so that I could prove that they wanted me to be a part of their company. And because of that, to this day, even if I don't know someone, if you're transitioning and you have a hard time finding a role, I tell people, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I need to have a conversation with you. I need to understand what your skill set is. But a lot of times, just having someone on the civilian side who knows you say, hey, talk to this person, makes a huge difference. Absolutely. It's all about who you know. And I know this one person named April. She rocks. <laughs> um, what else was, okay. Yeah. So the other question I was going to ask you or mention, bring up is you said something about going into the, into the military for the sake of getting that uh, help with, with education. And you, got the education but you, a bachelor's degree was not enough you went and got a master's degree too from the university of texas like what's up with that okay if i'm completely honest and i'm just gonna tell on myself remember i was younger i was more arrogant i had a lot of ego once i got my bachelor's degree i thought it was really important and I thought, if I have an MBA, people will take me much more seriously because I was in my early 20s and, you know, bubbly blonde girl. And then also, and this is terrible, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college and I wanted to make it tough for people to catch up. <laughs> wow, look at That's that. That's so bad, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I get that. Um, You're like, oh, yeah, I can't do it or watch this. Not only am I going to get my bachelor's degree, I'm going to one-up. I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to get me a master's. Boom. Bring it. What you got? You got a PhD? Okay, then back off because I got this. Here's what I'll tell you. At that age, too, I definitely confused knowledge and intelligence because they're two totally different things. And I got those two things from a place of fear that 
if I didn't have those credentials, people wouldn't take me seriously and they wouldn't know that I could do the work. Now that I have them, I will tell you that I don't place extraordinary value on them for myself or for others. I tend to look at people's aptitude and their attitude way more as weighing way more in my decision criteria than any kind of formal education. Okay, so I want you to break that down. So, like, what's the difference between knowledge and intelligence or between yes. formal? Uh, so, okay, so intelligence is just how smart you are, how good you are at figuring things out. And intelligence takes so many different forms, right? Maybe you're intelligent about how you deal with people. Maybe you're intelligent about how you do electrical work or carpentry. Maybe you're intelligent about how you can always find solutions no matter what. Knowledge is how much you know about certain subjects, how much information you have, whether because you've done it for years and years and years, or you've spent tons of time studying it. And I find that people who are not formally educated, they can sometimes think that their intelligence isn't as great as someone who has more knowledge in a formal sense. And I just fundamentally disagree. I think that anyone who has had any kind of success in their life is displaying that they're extremely intelligent, regardless of the level of education they've reached. I think that it is something that we've all bought into, but that doesn't make it true. So. Is that is that kind of where we get the um, book smarts versus street smarts? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And people weight those as one is more important than the other. And I just disagree. I think there's so many different types of intelligence and we all have access to so much knowledge that really for me, I just respect people who know different things than I do, who think different things than I do or different ways. And I think that all of it is valuable and there's no one way to do it or learn or grow. And that all businesses and individuals would be better off if they would look at the value of all of the diverse types of intelligence and knowledge. I think that's awesome. And since you're telling on yourself, I will tell on myself. <laughs> I love it. Uh, my, my educational endeavors is the endeavor is, see, I can't even use grammar, right? Um, <laughs> that's not um, true. Okay. Yeah, I can. Dang it. Thanks for calling me out. <laughs> um, uh, but my, so my educational endeavor has been different in that I am the only person in my family that does not have at least a bachelor's degree. I don't have a bachelor's degree. And yet I, I, I would in line with what you're saying, I would definitely say I'm an intelligent person. Mm -hmm. I, um, but I don't have that expensive piece of paper that says I, I, it took me four years to learn something. Um, All right, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that uh -oh, some people, right. some she's people may call disagree me with. No, some people may disagree with this, but I'm just going to put it right out there. Everything that I learned as I was working, right. Cause I worked full time undergrad and graduate school. 
worked in the Air Force when I was doing undergrad, worked in the corporate world when I was doing my MBA. Everything that I learned in real life work helped me make better grades in school, in college, in my MBA program. I didn't learn a damn thing in either one of those that helped me with my job. I'm just going to be completely candid with you. It was nice to know. Thanks for sharing your theories. But there was not a single piece of information that I can pinpoint that I learned that was in addition to what I already knew from working. Now, it might have rounded it out, given me a little more information, etc. But it's one of those reasons that when I'm hiring or I'm at a company and they're like, well, they have to have a degree. I'm like, yeah, you're limiting yourself there. It doesn't mean anything. And you were in the service. You already proved you could do something for well over 20 years. So that's really what a degree proves in the working world. I can do something I'm not required by law to do for this many years. And let's not forget, and I'm not against education. I love education. I love learning. I think it's great, but I don't think it's the only way. And let's not forget that colleges and universities, those are businesses. So if people stop valuing education as the only way, they go out of business. So there's a paradigm set up that wants people to believe that they're less if they don't have it. I don't agree. I have it. I don't think that I'm better than someone who doesn't or smarter. You know, and I like your, I like your, um, I like your statement about actually doing hands-on work enabled you to get better grades in a college or university so that you can get a degree and get a better job. Um, I think that, I think that says a lot. And I think that's one of the things that I like about the military way of, of learning things is you having that hands-on experience. It, I mean, I, I am a kinesthetic learner. So do it, you know, me, Hearing you tell me about it, watching you do it, and then you watching me do it, I think that's a great process because I, I, I know that I am now more fully grasping whatever this task is or whatever this thing is that I'm supposed to learn. And I, I attribute a lot of that to the fact that I am a kinesthetic learner, but I wonder how many more people out there who are in college could maybe excel further or do better in college if they were able to do something similar to that. If it wasn't all just straight up lectures and reading. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it is no coincidence or happenstance that the military is teaching people how to do things that are life and death right? There are jobs, mm -hmm. mine wasn't, but there are jobs that are life and death in the military. And there's not a single training program that takes four years because they're hands-on. The majority of them are 12 to 16 weeks. They're only longer if you're doing something like flying aircraft, but even then, it's not a four-year program. So isn't that interesting when you get the hands-on portion along with the portion of the learning that is more traditional, the way we think of learning, how much that accelerates the progress and the efficiency. Because if it was required to be the other way, you wouldn't 
be able to train people in that short period of time and not open yourself up for liability. Oh my gosh. You know what? I think I just found my new best friend. <laughs> Her name is April. Oh my gosh. I I love this. I well, mean thank you. I I don't love education. I love I like you yeah, you know, right, so I'll be honest. I love I do love to learn, kind of like what you said. I love to learn more about different things. I love I love the brain. I love the mind. Um, and I like to learn more about it. Do I want to be a doctor? Heck no. But I like to learn more about it just because, just to know more about how our brains work and how our bodies work. So I think it's awesome. What, what else does your, um, generosity culture do? I mean, cause like when I, when I saw your profile on LinkedIn, I saw that you started the generosity, um, culture. You are a keynote speaker. You're an author. You're a podcast host. You're a veteran and like you're what's up. <laughs> well, thank you. I, it's funny because all of those things aren't the actual work that I do, but they're, I guess, the result of that work. And basically, the generosity culture is those three principles I talked about pouring into your people, your clients, and your community. And I help businesses implement that. So whether they use that to turn around a failing company so that it can be successful, whether they use that to prep a successful company for eventual sale, or whether they use it just so that they can continue to grow exponentially, that's what it's for and about. And then all of the other things, the, the book, the podcast, the speaking is because I want to help as many people as possible. Not everybody's in the position to hire someone to come into their company and do that. So how can I impact those individuals? What can I give to them to help them with their mindset and their success? And that's where all the other things came in. I bet I know what you could give them. You could give them magic blue rocks. <laughs> I'm just saying. So what is what is that book about that you did magic blue box blue rots sorry so it's funny i don't think i knew what it really was when i wrote it i just knew that i felt compelled to write it i was motivated to write it by an amazing gentleman by the name of carrie daigle and he just said share your story because where you came from coming from relatively little that some people would say nothing to getting to where you want to go and, and doing what you've done. People need to know that that's possible. So that book is six short stories from my own life. Some of them where I did something really cool, more so when I epically failed and then it turned around and the lesson I learned. But what it actually is, is a covert mindset book. And it talks about how if you're able to cultivate a belief in yourself, a true guiding light belief in yourself, there is absolutely nothing you can't do. Anything that you think of, anything that you desire to do, you can absolutely do. And through the book, I help people cultivate that belief in themselves, literally just by going on the journey with me and watching what I messed up at and picking up the lesson that I learned. So you don't have to do the things that I did wrong, but you can come away from it with the same kind of belief I have 
that anything in the world is possible for you. And when you believe that, it's true. You know what? I, I almost want to just say, hey, look, I'm going to mute my mic. I'm going to sit back and I just want you to talk. <laughs> because you got a lot of golden nuggets. Um, Thank you. And, and I appreciate it. And, but you know what? When you were talking about that, something that came to mind, I was, I, I was interviewing another veteran. Um, yes, he was Air Force as well. And we were talking about the air. Thank you, and have a nice day. Thank you.